Welcome to Call and Shots. This is Seth Partnow. Uh, I am joined today by someone I've been trying to get on the pod for a while, um, in especially in relation to his his now newly released uh, book. So it, 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 it is out, right? Uh, get in the game: an interactive introduction to sports analytics, and we'll talk about that book in a little bit because I think it's a it is a very um, very clever way of demystifying and uh, introducing sort of sports analytics and statistical reasoning concepts to, to people who might be uh, have have certain impressions or fears of the discipline. But before we get to that, um, I, th- I think you need to be recognized as sort of a, a founder in this field. Uh, Tim is a is a professor of math, math and computer science. At Davidson, and there, um, I th- is it fair to say you're the the uh, the originator of one of the first sort of college sports analytics clubs in the nation. Yes, that's true. We were beginning sports analytics when it was a lesser known thing, and the only thing people thought of was Moneyball, which many people still think of, but it's not the only thing people think of. And I had three students walk in my office and say that they wanted to do math uh, outside the classroom, um, not for any credit, not for any pay. And they asked if we could create analytics for the men's basketball team. And uh, that's quite a tall order because that meant you were trying to create analytics for Bob McKillop, (laughs) who is a very successful coach. And, but I said, look, I can't guarantee that they'll use anything, but if you're willing to try, I'm willing to try. And we did, and we met with the assistant coaches for two months to develop our work, and our work became an integral part of what they used to help them think through game preparation and getting ready ready for the opponents we did. That was the main emphasis of that work, and um, it was very exciting. It's one of the most gratifying parts of, of my entire professor career. And you, Cat Stats has, has ventured well beyond just men's basketball, is my understanding. Yes, and it, it grew uh, significantly. So one of the biggest parts of that first year is that I had three students, two of which were managers of the team, which is actually kind of important because part of what gave us the inroad to the team was the fact that two of the members of the group actually knew the team and had a good sense of the types of things that the coaches would find interesting. And I can talk more about the success and lack of success with some of the ideas. But by the next year, they were all seniors, so they all graduated. And the hardest year was that second year because I needed entirely new people, which I got. And it grew to six, and then it grew to 13, and then it grew to 30. And then it finally leveled out um, at 100. I actually had 100 oh. students in Cat Stats all working and not all on men's basketball. So we did, uh, and I'm using past tense. It's still actually a very active group, but it got so gigantic that I was going to have to change the nature of my research and scholarship. And it had become so independent because my um, goal was always that the student, I'm there to guide them. I'm there when they're stuck, which I still am but that they were really the leaders of their individual groups. And so we were able to make it a student club a year ago. And so I'm still involved, but all of the administration, placing students in groups and all of these things, I'm not having to do, and which is extremely helpful. And 
but we do men and women's basketball. The second sport we did was women's basketball. And then uh, we do football, volleyball, women's volleyball, uh, men and women's soccer, lacrosse, a little tiny bit of field hockey, a little bit of swimming. Uh, can't remember which ones I said, baseball, football, and um, I'm missing something. But yeah, we moved to around eight or nine sports and all that we were helping the coaches to various degrees. Some like baseball took us about four or five years to actually find something that was helpful for the team because they already got so many analytics and, and some of the projects that we originally did go away because analytics became bigger and bigger. And so some of the vendors that they were already getting resources from began to include the type of work that we did. So then we would broaden into new areas with the coaching staff as well. How did you approach sports where it um, sort of newer frontier sports? And that's, you know, they're obviously baseball is well established. Basketball is pretty well established uh, from a from a metric standpoint. Uh, Football is getting there. But for sports like field hockey and volleyball, um, I can't imagine there was much existing work to build upon. No. And so. I'm going to answer that in a little bit of a different way. So feel free to literally ask again if I'm not answering it. But a lot of times what people actually ask me is like, how do you even get buy-in from the coach? And actually that's part of the answer to your question is that what a lot of it is determining how to support the analytics we do supports the coaching staff. There are many other types of analytics. Like we have worked with the athletic department on more marketing type analytics to try to help what I call butts and seats analytics, getting people there to the game. And um, you can do fan analytics where you're doing things. We do some of that. The students now in the student club do much more of that very successfully where they're trying to get the fans to enjoy the game in more enhanced and new ways. And But we were entirely uh, coaching analytics and anything we were doing with Twitter was approved by the coaching staff and just a variation on what we were supplying them and particularly in the beginning. So when we would meet with a coach, the first thing I would go to that meeting, I was always part of that, that initial meeting. And actually just what I would say is just, so what do you do with numbers and what do you wish you could do with numbers? And that's it. That was my total question. And I was doing two things with that. I was listening for anything that we could support them. And I was trying to sense how open or unopen they were to analytics. And that can vary a lot from person to person. And some coaches don't really need a lot of support because it's not really what they want. It's not the way that they're working. And, um, that's okay. I mean, you know, we don't want to just supply stuff that's put to the side at the same time. Overall, we were very successful, successful with what we did. And so I would start with that and then I would move to, why don't I show you some of the things we've done in, usually it was basketball and we did uh, shot charts, which usually like in volleyball, we would do a variation on shot charts for volleyball and then have to talk about how do we do this? Like, are we hand entering data? Someone has to be at the game. Is there anything online that we can learn to scrape and download? 
And that varied by sport. In baseball, what we finally came up with uh, initially, it's not what we do now, because again, it got usurped by some of the products that were available. But we initially finally made an inroad with the team on pitching. But it was something where we actually needed to have students sitting basically behind home plate, actually gauging what was coming across the plate in a particular way. And, and in that one, it had to be someone who played baseball. Like, I couldn't have done that. I played Sandlot um, baseball, just like with basketball. I always say I played half court, which is so silly. We didn't even play um, foul line, I guess, <laughs> basketball, where you move from offense to defense by rotating 180 degrees unless you had the ball. And um, so some things I can do successfully and some things I need people who played in more organized ways. I did play organized sports, but not in not in some of the sports that I played quite a bit in the uh, town I grew up in, in Philadelphia area. So that's usually what we did, where we would work like that, and then we would, we always did it in the off season, and we would work with the past season, we would pick games, and then develop the product, and then see if it gave them new information or the same information sometimes that they already had, but they were offloading the project and the time to us. We had one project for the football team where our football program evaluates every play by certain metrics of that determines success of, of the play. And we figured out that all of that existed in the play-by-play so we could just download the play-by-play, you know, just with Python code, just grab it and then analyze it. And so within 10 seconds, we had a report of every down and its success. And we saved the coaching staff three hours because they were spending three hours doing that by hand. And that was one of our highly successful projects because that's a lot of time within a week. And... Um, that's usually what we were doing um, with that and how we would go about it. That's, I think that's an under-recognized point is that so much of sort of, uh, I don't know if we'd call it analytics 1.0 or 0.1 or whatever, is sort, <laughs> of, is sort of automating and collating counting stats. Yes. And, and, yeah, and, some, go, and tying go them together in a way that, that allows for deeper insight. Like, you know these yeah. things are important, but if, if, you know, if you chart something, you chart it once, and then it's, it, that's a static thing. But if you actually create a, a data set off of it, you can say, well, what came before? What came after? And these yeah. are all things that, that are doable, but by, by building just that more malleable data set, you're allowing for, like, an exponential increase in the kinds of inquiries that a, that a coach yes. can answer without yes. having to... You know, I think this is a thing. Let's go. Let's go back and rechart all those plays. Like every idea you have, if you have to do that, the the number of the number of of kind of projects, the number of insights you can get is obviously limited by the fact that everyone takes four hours. Yeah, but if exactly. It's 15, if it's fifteen minutes to figure out how to pull the pull the scenarios out of the data set, you've you've you suddenly like you know you've multiplied their available time by like twenty. Yeah, exactly, and. One of the big things I think sometimes people, or at least in college, working with students where they're, I think it's true of anyone, but maybe that's <laughs> everyone within my, I work with college students so much that that's kind of the view I have. 
But a lot of times my students really want to show that they're like really smart and like really, really gifted in math. And, and they'll, they'll want to try something really complicated. And a lot of times I'm like, okay, but let's see if there's a simpler way to do this that someone else can really easily understand what you did and gives you basically exactly the same information. Like it, we can do the more complicated one maybe on the side as a way to verify it, but let's see if there's like another way that we can do this because the, the person that we're presenting this to doesn't have a lot of time, doesn't have a math degree, and has to make a decision off of what we're doing. And before they're gonna make a decision, the first decision is, are they even gonna make a decision off of this? And we have to create that trust in order for them to, for us to like, Bob used to always talk about us as being part of the team. And for us to literally be part of the team, there has to be trust and, and, and commitment in, in terms of the way that Bob talked about our team, uh, the whole team in terms of the players. and. Steph Curry talks about that in terms of the importance of trust and commitment and caring. And, um, and that's very much a part of the way that we looked at what we did as well. One other quick thing that in terms of what you're pointing out is that I often will say to people that with analytics, to me, it often isn't the complexity of what you do, but it's the depth of insight that you can and the flexibility of insight you can get from it. And what you do might be surprisingly simple, but the best moment in analytics is when you come up with something that everyone in the room sits there and goes, man, how didn't I think of that? And yet it's so profound that you have a lot of things that you can do with it that like, like you were saying, it's so well said that you can ask many questions from many sides from one piece of existing work that you create. That's the gems that, that, really occur within analytical work. I think the way that I've always kind of thought of this, and this is something that goes back to, you know, when I was graduating law school and studying for the bar and bar prep in bar exam prep, there's bar prep is something completely different. Um, bar exam prep, <laughs> there's, there, there's a, there's a mantra that that's, that's constantly reminding you to, to, to remember the call of the question because you're, you're, if it's a contract, if it's a contract, situation on the test you're what the the examiners are not asking for an outline of black letter contract law they're asking for how would you analyze this particular situation and and it, and it seems like you know what you're saying with people wanting to you know go technique forward almost is there is is in the desire to look how capable i am is, yeah. is losing sight of 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 kind of the, the what are we doing here <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, is if what you're do that's a great way to look at it is if what you're doing is trying to show how capable you are, then that's just a very different goal. And that was never my goal. And, it, and in some ways I think it's why at times, particularly when I started a PhD professor going into sports analytics you could go into data analytics but you needed to not be doing sports i mean you had to be nuts to move into sports and maybe i was nuts i don't know but i i just saw that the energy um this can sound almost cheesy disney goofy but it's probably not disney goofy but whatever that 
I would sit at a table with a student and, and we would be doing something where they were creating something or they're presenting like their work to an NBA team or to our coaches. And I could literally tell in that moment that that student was living a memory that they would have for the rest of their lives. And they knew it at that moment. And, you know, when you go, when you have the skill set that I have and you're choosing to teach, that's what you're hoping for. (laughs) You're not in it for the grading. And so, and I I had that over and over again. And so there was no way I wasn't working within sports. And the other thing I like about sports analytics particular is that many people, there isn't as much of a, of a incline, if you will, learning curve uh, to get into the domain of sports. Whereas finance or health, or th- it's really hard. And even students who are very mathy and, you know, I don't know if I really like sports, but I'm going to try cat stats. That's great. You're, you're very welcome. And you do need to check your work with people who know sports when you're getting it out the other side. But I, they sometimes come up with unintuitive results because they aren't tied to what they already believe the way that sometimes heavy sports fans really have to be careful of just getting the analytics. It's, you know, we could have just asked your opinion before you did all that. <laughs> and that's what you're going to make your work say. Surely and, not. Nobody would do that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I do a lot of work with March Madness. That's really why I did that before I moved into cat stats. That's how I moved my work into the arena of sports. And I, When I first created the research with my main collaborator, Amy Langville, at the College of Charleston, um, it was very different. It was linear algebra and all this type of stuff. And then a year later, we saw it in a simpler way, and which is now the way I can present it to the public. And um, each year, I do quite a bit of this around March Madness. But my favorite thing in class is when somebody creates – so you're able to customize your bracket. You're able to make these – these very simple decisions that actually can have a fairly profound effect on the the teams that you are choosing that will win. And my favorite thing in class is when, because I teach in North Carolina, and there are students who have pretty strong opinions, particularly <laughs> about Duke and UNC. And it's really funny when a student who likes, for instance, let's just say Duke, will create a model, and that model is 100% saying that UNC is going to win. And they will literally sit there and go, oh, no, no, no. And then they'll just literally change their model. And I love to ask, okay, now why are these new parameters there? I, I just need to change it. <laughs> I, just, I just can't. Yeah, exactly. I'm bringing shame on my entire family. By, yeah, by I know. Really, I, I do need to go home. And so <laughs> it's, just a, it's my favorite thing in the world when that happens. And then you, because when we have the class competition, um, <laughs> it's usually a non-sports fan, like it, like because I work in sports analytics. I, there are some students who are heavy into sports who are part of this and do very very well. But when it comes to the the bracketology work, a lot of times it's somebody who sort of follows but not super close, and but they have friends that can kind of look at what they push out at the same time. So <laughs> But that's always my example when somebody's like, well, what do you mean? Like you would alter your results. And and it's in North Carolina, I just have to say the Duke and UNC example and people go, oh, yeah, well, I would probably do that. So, yeah, that, that, yeah, that tracks. 
<laughs> um, and, 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 and on something like that, it seems like the like the the more like in depth for your fandom, probably the to your detriment, I would imagine, when approaching it this way, like the the more strongly held your priors are. Yeah, yeah, and it's a it's a tricky thing. It's one of the reasons why the larger Cat Stats group was so helpful because we had people of uh, Davidson's and National Liberal Arts Schools, so we have students from all over the country. So that diversified our fan base a lot, which helped with results. And then we also had people of varying degrees, people who played a lot, people who actually played for the team. They were allowed to do analytics on their own team. And, and all of that helped us. Each person, I always would say at the orientation meeting that if you have interest, you have a place. And I don't care what you're, you're not, we don't have a hundred math majors a year. We're a school of 2000. We don't, I mean, that, I guess that'd be great. I don't know. I actually would create issues to have that many. We'd have to rethink some of what we do. But um, there were majors from all over there that were taking part in CAT stats because they have a place and they, you know, what you do will vary. I mean, computer science majors can do things and they can do them quickly and accurately that um, a, a studio art major cannot. But when it comes to conveying the, information graphically you know studio art major is really helpful to have and um so yeah that, that was a big part of what we did too i mean i think if if one is trying to get a job in a front office um having uh, design <laughs> skills is uh would not be a bad you know someone who has sports knowledge and design skills would yeah. would, would uh, find competition for their services i think uh, yeah, amongst exactly. offices across a number of leagues. Uh, let me ask yeah. a couple more cat stats questions, and then we'll, we'll get to the sure. book. Um, uh, so the first one is, is Davidson specific. Uh, you, you mentioned kind of the two months of of you know meetings with the assistant coaches you had before you started. I just I I, I am uh, I was fortunate enough to to get to spend some time with a, with a major league baseball team. Just you know they they brought me out, had me talk to some staff, and. We exchanged ideas, and I got to spend some time with the manager, and he showed me like the like the the daily like like cheat sheet basically that the, the the analytics group gave him every day to like you know help him with you know matchups and pitcher fatigue and stuff like that. And and it's like, so how long did it take you guys to come up with this? And it was like, well, no, it's something we like we we've, we've revised it every year. I've been here yeah. maybe a couple times yeah. a year because there's this back and forth, and we've figured out the best way to get the information I want on one double-sided piece of paper. Um, so that, I mean, just the importance of that sort of iteration. So I'm very, I'm, I'm curious as to sort of how that went both initially and over time with, with since that's the sport you've, you've obviously been, or the team you've been most in depth with. Yeah, so when we first started, uh, the managers of the team knew that, we would do scouting reports. They, that was a big thing, was we will use the database called Synergy, which is this massive basketball. Um, like, if you like data, I mean, you're in Willy Wonka land of data, I mean, for basketball. And it's available. We use it in baseball. And, but it, if you're not heavily into numbers, it, it's kind of a labyrinth at the same time because it's a lot of data. And... In a way, scouting reporting to us is a hunt for outliers. Where is the team average? But more importantly, where is the team not? 
And some outliers create vulnerabilities and some outliers create attention for our vulnerability to their success in that area. And so we wanted to create both team analytics uh, in terms of the styles of offense and defense that they played as an entire team. And then we wanted to create the scouting report per player for the team. And that in a way can sound, I don't know, that might sound like it's not that difficult, but like it needed to be a scouting report that they wanted, like that they found helpful. I and mean, they, sh- yeah. No, you're, you're, I mean, you're talking about what was, I don't know, 40% of my job with the box essentially was yeah. creating and maintaining, you know, and updating the, that kind of, you know, daily workflow kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And so what my favorite part of this was when the student who created team analytics created his first scouting report. Davidson is a liberal arts school, so they take lots of, of courses in reading and writing, and it's one of their strengths in terms of, of a Davidson student. <laughs> so he creates the writing report, and he walks in with like a five- to six-page double-spaced report. <laughs> nope. <laughs> he gives them to the assistant coaches, one of which is Matt McKillop, who's now the head coach, and who were both graduated from Davidson. And they look at each other. They give each other the warmest, empathetic grin, rotate the page 180 degrees, push it back to the student and say, that's not going to work. <laughs> <laughs> and so we then went through that it needs to be bullets which bullets even come first, like which information needs to be at the top. And we did that for the team analytics and for the player analytics is what exactly are we actually looking for and when, what information. Well, one of the big things, too, that we learned, it, for us at least, is that fan analytics do not overlap a whole lot with coaching analytics. Like what the coaches want are usually not things that the fan, like if we found something that the coaches went, that's not coachable, we're not interested in that. It usually meant that we could tweet it and the fans would be (laughs) like, yeah. I mean, it was like everybody really enjoyed that. Um, Sometimes people aren't sure what I mean by coaching and coachable. That was a big thing for us in that two month period and was ever since, but, but it became a term that we used a lot. Coachable is something like telling a team that you're third in defense either in the country or in the conference. Great. But like, what do I do with that? Like, like how do I become second or how do I become first or what is keeping me from being fourth? Like what, what does that mean in terms of how we are a team or how we improve or how we maintain? And that was a big thing that we had to learn in that opening period um, was the other thing was that actually saying third was usually irrelevant this player is second in the nation in the following, um, or number 135 or something. We used percentages of this player is in the 99th percentile or, you know, whatever. That helped the coaches more quickly uh, think the data. Is, is that good? Is sort of the, 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 the follow-up question you never want to get? Because you, you hopefully you're already presenting it in such a way that, like, he is, he, this is his, you know, in whatever metric he has this, and that is good, is, is, is should yeah. be like readily apparent. Um, yes, exactly. Let, let me, so a, a, a friend of mine is an assistant coach at, uh, at, at George Washington now. His name is Zach Bovert. And he's, and he is, 
I, uh, he has described to me how uh, some of the coaching staffs he's been on. I think he was talking. He was an assistant at Army at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. That that he was, is that they used analytics and numbers in sort of two two different ways, and uh, he he described it as um, um, religiously and liberally. And what he meant yes. by religiously is when the coaches decided that these are the stats we're tracking that's going to tell us how we're doing. They decided on that at the start of the season, and that was a stone tablet. Like, this is what yeah. is important. We have decided this already. We're not going to argue about another way to figure out if our transition defense is good or not. This is what we've yeah. decided. Uh, but with when he was using them liberally, it's like when you're trying to influence player behavior, um, lies, damn lies, and statistics applies. Like, you can yes. you can cherry pick. You can, <laughs> you can yeah. mess around with, like, axes. Just whatever you can do to... To bring the message to the player and get them to do whatever, either keep doing what you like them to do or do something differently on the floor. Um, does that have any? Does that have any resonance with how you worked with with uh, with with the Davidson program? Yeah, one of the big things for us, um, which is a little bit different than what you're saying, it's connected, and I hope I hope the connection's clear because it's it's an important connection. We never ever presented anything to a player. Yes. Period. It always went to the coaches because players vary considerably on the effect analytics have on their play. And some players, you really don't want to tell them certain things because they'll, they'll just change the way they play because of this knowledge and kind of screw themselves up. And the coaches were always very good and in charge of dealing with that. And so that that was our biggest thing was always being the women's team at one point was having um, one of the one of the members of cat stats keep track of analytics during practice and one of the players kept running over and looking at her numbers oh. and it completely screwed her up in practice so they had to change the way we did that they put him in a um, if I remember right I may I may not have this right but something like Put, put him in like a harder part of the court <laughs> right. so you could just run over there and um, and then it, it evened itself out again. And so to me, that's a very connected idea to what you're saying is that that part of the point of the statistics in, in the analytics is in the argument it makes, because the, the way we would always put it is that my work, our work is an informed opinion from data. And so we're giving you an opinion from data, but it comes from a model because they're always in some way a model. They're only part of the data. They're only part of what's going on. And you will have limits to what the information can give you. And so one of our roles was to help the coaches understand as best we could the model that we had or just the limits of what we were doing so they could think when to use it and when not to use it. And um, also just to understand that, you know, if in that context, they're really not sure that that data applies. I always told the students, if the coach doesn't follow what you said, they're right. And um, I'm not sure they always are completely right, but I'm not a coach and I don't have the experience. So if they have to make that choice in that moment, that's the choice that should be made. And if we can help them down the road, make a different choice, that's great. But our job isn't to sit around and act like, we could coach the team. That's just, to me, that's completely silly. That's not our role at all. 
And also just, I mean, I think there's probably a good lesson there just in terms of like, you know, reading the room and power dynamics is like, even if they're wrong, they're right. Just because that's yeah, sort of, exactly. <laughs> like, I yeah. think for people, for people, especially, you know, someone who I went to a, a, the school academically, uh, similar to Davidson, I think a lot of my, me and a lot of my classmates had uh, probably had some problems transitioning from being a senior to being a, you know, an entry level person, like on, on that yeah. front. It's like, well, that's dumb. Why are we doing it that way? It's like, you've been here two weeks. Shut up. <laughs> it's sort of, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There comes a point when the coaches will ask and are legitimately asking, but until they do that, you're just giving an opinion from data and you just, you know, don't worry about it. The, the time may come. One of the examples I have of that was actually with baseball. The coach, when we first met, what do you do with numbers? What do you wish you could do with numbers? First thing he says to me is, I don't want you doing anything with hitting. I want to go with my gut no matter what. And I'm like, okay, then we won't do hitting. What can we do? Well, pitching. And he'd been very successful with pitching. He had actually worked with the U.S. Uh, base, uh, Olympic baseball team, Was worked with the pitchers. And he came up with a problem that we could look at. And that took a long time for us to figure out how to do it. it took four years, but we were able to actually help the team with the pitching in the way that he was interested. But we created prototype code to do it very quickly. Within a month, we had prototype stuff that would actually work, which could beg the question, why did it take four years? But that's a larger question of, it's different when you're showing prototype off of limited data versus we're gonna do this all the time for every game. Those are not the same thing. And when, um, you know, oh wait, I wanna back up one point. So when I turned to the students, I had quite a few students wanting to do baseball. So we had a meeting after the meeting with the coach. And I said, okay, you need to understand the coach explicitly said, do not work on hitting. Do not work on hitting. I don't want anyone doing anything on hitting. Do not look at it. Because if one of you looks at that and slips up and says something, it, we could be done. Like, like we may we may not work on baseball anymore. So just don't look at it. They were not he doesn't want anything, so we don't need to give him anything. And they all agreed, which was one thing I loved about Cat Stats was we worked well together. So they're like, Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So we did the pitching, showed the results. I couldn't believe I didn't go to the second meeting because he was so comfortable with the students that I was actually able to transition out of being at the meetings very quickly in baseball. Not as true in some sports. They want me there a little, they want the PhD there longer. And, um, but he was comfortable with that. And then the student comes back and he goes, Oh man, that meeting was great. I'm like, Oh, that's fantastic. So they like the pitching. He goes, yeah. But right after I showed it to him, he said, okay, let's start with hitting. (laughs) (laughs) So that's always my story about, you know, the coach is right and you do what they say and then you never know what might come next. (laughs) So last question on, on cat, cat stats, and, I sh- and it's not directly on cat stats, but I'm sure you get asked a lot by people from other, other colleges, other universities about how to kind of replicate it. Um, yeah. I don't want to get into that so much as I get asked by uh, college coaches from time to time, like they, okay, we're at this university, we have a CS department, we have a math department, we have a statistics department, uh, we should, and there are people who would like to be involved with the program. How do we get something out of that? What advice would you give? Well, what advice would you give me to, in terms of what advice to give them when we have those conversations in the future? 
Yeah, there are two things. Um, one thing is, I, I don't mean this in a trite way, but just quite literally, like, what do you do with numbers and what do you wish you could do with numbers? Like, what, what do you, what do you do that you think, like, a computer might do? Like, what do you think could be kind of thrown in Excel and then somehow kind of looked at? I mean, I know that you may not have a CS degree, but like, it, um, just w what could be done in that way? Or you just literally get a meeting and kind of show them things you do and say, would you be able to help with any of this? And that's basically the way we do our meetings. Um, I have found that one of the best ways to begin in most sports is with shot charts. And so I've actually developed a, a free um, uh, D3JS. Do I have the right word? Somehow the acronym went whole, totally outside my head. The, the, um, the, the web-based yeah. one that's based on JavaScript. And it, you just put a picture behind it so you can adapt it for any sport just by putting the field behind the picture. And then you can put in the entries of what you're logging in there. And um, now you don't need to use ours, but somebody can write. Those are not hard codes to write for a, a CS major. And then you can, if you get the data and you save it by team, you can begin to import them into another program that visualizes it. And you can look across different games, you can look across um, different years, and so forth and so on. So CS uh, students are very good at that type of thing by and large. And shot charts are usually a good place, in my opinion, um, to begin because it's kind of low hanging fruit for most CS majors. And if it's not, the nice thing is I'm Tim Chartier at Davidson College. And you can look me up and email me and you're not the first email that I've gotten on that. So I kind of know how to reply. And uh, but I have a very heavy email feed. So if I don't reply, it just means I wasn't ready to do it. And my email feeds heavy enough that you need to email me again. So then <laughs> I reply the next time. So that that's kind of my or you give them your database. Um, if there's a big database that you work with, which is the synergy type thing I was talking about, um, computer science and math people like numbers. That's actually what Matt McKillop used to say. It's not that we couldn't look at the numbers, but having people who really like looking at the numbers is really helpful. And um, now what to look for, what to present. That's my only thing about that is that, you know, they have to be sifting it and interpreting it in a way that's helpful for you. And so that one takes a little bit more dialogue. And that's why I usually actually don't start with that because there is a little bit more overhead for a coach on that. And so it depends how much time uh, and patience that they have with that because there there is an interplay. You mentioned that earlier about the iteration of the work that the baseball team had done. And our shot chart programs iterated and refined over time with both us and the coaching staff of what they wanted. That makes a lot of sense. I think the, the I mean the 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 part that is the the the, the key part is that the um, you know making it so that the mental load kind of on the coach in terms of managing it is less than like the benefit they get out of it. That always seems yeah. like the like we know this would be a That's good thing, but I just don't, like you know I'm coaching, I'm recruiting, I'm you know doing yeah. that, like making sure kids are going to class and. Also, I want to do this, and how do I do it? So, just like overseeing it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, doesn't, you know, 
it's, it's sort of the internship thing of, uh, well, are, are we getting more, are we getting more value out of having the intern than we are working on managing the intern or not? And so getting to that point, I think is the, is, 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 is certainly a barrier. Yeah. And I think like, it depends on your, your, how kind of your risk, how much risk you're willing to take. And, um, we had a coach that, that in a sport that I don't want to be specific about it, but he, he hates analytics. He, he hates it. And we were good friends. We lived in the same neighborhood and, and I just said, Hey, I know you hate analytics, but could we try to make something for you? Like, like I would just like to try just cause given you're the person I know that hates this stuff the most. So would you be okay with that? And he goes, sure, I won't use it, but I don't mind you trying. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. And so I told everybody and, you know, I brought in players from the team and they're like, oh, this would be great. We created it. Nope. He was like, oh, man, I would never use that. And then he explained why. And it was like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But then we actually worked with another related sport. And it was interesting. When he saw that, he actually contacted one of his players and said, okay, I would like them to build that. But he did not look at it as analytics, which is interesting because sometimes – you know, like Charles Barkley will say he hates analytics, but I bet you anything Charles Barkley could tell you the number of rebounds he got in certain games. And at one time, rebounds were not an analytic that they were keeping track of in the same way. And so Charles may say, well, that's not really analytics. Well, certain things that are not AI today were AI at the time they were created. So it all depends. I think that, that for some people, when they say they hate analytics, if you listen to them, I actually agree with them. I, I can go, yeah, no, I hate that too. And, and what they're, what they're talking about is this, like this, it's a dogma that you have to follow and that it's giving you truth that usurps experience. And it's sometimes it can give you non-intuitive insight that can transform what you're doing. Honestly, in my opinion, a lot of times what analytics does is just, is just lower the cognitive load because it confirms things that you're doing. And a lot of times it's just saying, yes, you're right. Yes, this is what you should be doing. And you just move on. You don't even have to question yourself anymore, which is often very helpful. Yeah, I think I think it's it's less understood than it should be that, like, if you dive deep into basketball, for example, like oh, 85, 90 percent of conventional wisdom is like, yeah, that's right. It's because, <laughs> you know, the, the competitive pressures have have, uh, you know, things that are bad lose and those coaches get fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great way of talking yeah. about it. Yeah, uh, um, I want to finish up just to 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 you know sure. uh, talk about your your new book. Um, yeah. uh, it, it's kind of it's funny that we're getting to this after forty minutes or so because this is why I wanted to have you on in the first place. But uh, That's fine. Uh, y- your book is out now, and I and I I've, I I think I, I I messaged you as just as I was starting reading it. It's like this is a tremendous approach to to kind of introduction <laughs> introducing sports analytics. So can you? Can you describe sort of how the idea came, like what the approach is and how the idea uh, came to mind? Sure. So one of my big things is that I I do a lot of outreach speaking. I speak to intergenerational audiences. I speak to kids. I speak to youth because sports analytics is a place where kids that love sports can find math as a useful tool and kids that love math can do something that people actually care about what they're doing, which it can sound kind of funny, but when you work in math, usually people don't really want to know a single thing about what you're doing. And it's helpful to be able to do that. And it's helpful for us just as a society to realize that math is a four letter word, but not in the way that we usually mean that. 
And it's just a helpful thing to, to not view math as this horrible thing, kind of horrible. I mean, during the pandemic, I had to help teach my daughter eighth grade math. I mean, man, I mean, I'm not taking that again. I mean, woof, <laughs> that was not my thing. And, um, but sports analytics isn't that way. But one of the biggest hurdles was, okay, but like, how do I go about teaching people sports analytics? Like in some cases, all I, if I'm going to teach people like simulation, they need a random number generator. Well, how the heck do I do that when I'm speaking to a thousand people? Um, and, and what I finally determined was that, well, I can roll a die or flip a coin and I just flip enough of them or flip it enough times or roll enough, a die, have two dice or roll a die twice. And I can approximate probabilities in that way. And the very first example I ever did was where students were, it's in the book. It's actually the first like chapter of content is on, um, you shoot against Steph Curry and you get to shoot better than Steph. You get to shoot 50% because you're flipping a coin and you try to match his feet from, I think it's 2014 and um, it's 2013 or 14, but I think, I know it's February, but I think it's 2014. I got the year wrong for a couple of years. I don't know which way I went, but I don't even know why I did, but I <laughs> suddenly was off by a year and uh, Steph got, um, made 11 out of 13 three pointers in Madison square garden. And this was, you know, far enough back that going viral was a pretty big thing because, you know, Twitter wasn't quite what it was and so forth. And man, it was everywhere. Now I teach at Davidson college and Steph went to Davidson, just graduated from Davidson in a tremendous ceremony at the college and so forth. But it was beyond the Davidson community that that got attention. And so like, okay, well, when things get that much attention, is it just that it's cool or is this like a pretty big moment? And like, well, if it's a pretty big moment, that means that it's highly improbable. So how can I use dice or coin flipping? If I just keep one die and one coin, this is my image when I wrote the book. If I kept a die and a coin next to the chair or couch where I watch sports, how could I flip or roll to determine if some moment I just saw in sports was potentially historic. And that's basically the book <laughs> is that it goes through all these different techniques of ways to use dice and coins to look at different types of much of it being probability to get underneath the ways that you can take the numbers of the game and begin to turn them into probabilities. Because if you think about it, there's a lot of sports that the strategic decisions that you make are based on probabilities. I'm going to make it go to the left more than the right because you're more unlikely, which is a probability, to make something from the left than the right. And that's really the premise of the book, that you, just using dice, you can get into confidence intervals. We do that with Alex Morgan. Then we have p-values and so forth. It goes into quite a bit. And But at a premise that it's been it's been tried out in many audiences, um, which actually began with my, the very first time I tried the idea was actually at the National Museum of Mathematics, which is actually where I am right now on sabbatical is I'm the distinguished visiting professor for the public dissemination of mathematics at the National Museum of Math. And MoMath, as it's called, actually demands that talks are highly interactive. So a museum of math can sound like probably one of the worst places you would ever <laughs> go. And that's because you haven't been to one. 
So if you think of a science museum, that sounds like the worst thing that you would ever go. Like the last thing I want to do is go to a bunch of displays on beakers. You know what I mean? I'm not going to go to that. But I love science museums because I know what they are. They're highly interactive and the Ben Franklin Museum and all these. And that's exactly what MoMath is. And you walk it. MoMath changes lives because when you walk in the door, no matter if you're the one who wanted to come or you were the one who was dragged in, both perspectives change because the mathematics is rich and deep in what's there. Well, I gave a talk for families and I said to my wife as, as we were going, she's an educator, so she helped me with the presentation and her name is Tanya. And I said, Tanya, this is what I'm hoping can eventually be a book. So tonight it'll be fun, but we'll see. And man, the way that night went, I just said, okay, this is the book. I've got to continue to work this out. So through my speaking, over the next six years, which even included international speaking, I was brought into the, to Panama to speak on sports analytics. And I definitely didn't you do U.S. centric sports. So I even had to change my sports for that venue. And uh, I began developing these ideas. So uh, I, the book to me was super fun to write. It's got wonderful illustrations by a young artist by the name of Ansley Earl. And she worked with me very closely to get the analytic, the, to get the drawings um, that we have for the book too. So to me, it works for people who know analytics because you can look at it in a bit of a different way. And then it very much works for people who are newer to analytics. My own students have read it who are math majors in college and thought of new models that they could then write computer codes for. And one student read it, a high school student, and the, the one chapter on that looks at Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi, mainly because I wanted a cartoon of Andre Agassi's hair when he was young. But um, there was this match where neither of them lost serve. And it's like, how improbable is that? Well, you get a computer to estimate playing out the game. And so I kind of walked through how to do that with dice. And then I wrote computer code to kind of play the game many times. Well, a high school student read that and went, wait a minute, I can create a win probability model for a tennis match. And he actually did. So that means that at the moment of the game, I know exactly everyone's score, then I could take that moment and play out the rest of the game 10,000 times. And then what's the probability? Well, it's the percentage of times that I won. And is it exactly it? I don't care. I don't care if you're 65 or versus 69% likely to win. That's not the point. And usually with the win probability, I'm not even, I don't even necessarily totally care what the number is. I'm looking for the big changes because those are those key moments. Those are the moments when you're a fan and you go, yes, or you're a fan, you go, oh no, is those are those big jumps in win probability. And he was able to do that off of this book where what he did was much more complicated than what I was pointing out but very subtly written in there was a springboard and to do analytics in a more complicated way if you're someone who enjoys that. So that's the book. What I responded to about it, and this is something that I've, I've sort of found, and I think you probably found some of this in your work with Cat Stats, is it's presented in such a way that's like, hey, you already know this. Yes. You know, and that's and that, you know, when working with 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 basketball coaches or something like that, if you like the more you can or, or, or front office people or whoever, the more you can frame things is you already know this. But 
Um, <laughs> it, it's like that's you know, a little flattery never goes awry. I feel like, and it, it seems like you, and and you know, despite the despite the book being you know very out of the like made of no simple is the is the wrong word, but but airy, I guess is is it's actually you're you are you're flattering the audience and say, hey, you know this already. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and, but he, but you don't realize, you know what? So here's what you're actually doing. Here's the, yeah. here's the, here's the, the sort of the background calculation, the computer in your head is actually, is actually running. Yes, exactly. And one of the biggest things for me in helping people find the mathematician in themselves is to actually realize the level of mathematics that you already know. And that if the baggage of your mathematical journey weighs you down in a way where you don't see it. There's a real freeing thing. And sports analytics has been, yeah, it's neat to have the people who love math, but even neater are the people who didn't. And for me, the book does both. I can imagine a child, for for instance, or a youth, it, it could be a young adult, but I often imagine a child or a youth reading the book and running over and sharing it with a parent who may have had a very negative math journey. And suddenly they're both reading it. And that's what we found as we demoed the book was that was happening. People were reading it to, with each other. And that's my hope is because, you know, we parents will read books, but my God, I mean, you know, during the pandemic, everybody loved to tell me how horrible it was working with a kid with math. I mean, talk about a time to be a math PhD. And, um, but I think that this is a place where you can have a lot of fun and imagine people watching a game and more and more saying, hey, you know, we could model that in the following way together. What do you think? And then how could we improve the model? Because that's what, of course, you do in your work. And by the way, I became much more of a Bucks fan when you were there. So for what it's worth, I have such respect for all that you do. I just so enjoy the work that you do that when you were, I was always rooting for the Bucks unless they played my team. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, I, uh, I always was very much, I, I had never really paid that much attention to the Bucks because, you know, they're 30 teams and that, and, um, but it was kind of fun for me. But anyway, that's my hope with the book. Sure. So let me. So uh, you want to tell people where they can where they can find it and and uh, sure. get you out here on that note. Yeah. So the book is available on Amazon. So you just put in "Get in the Game" and um, uh, "Introduction to Sports Analytics." Uh, you could put in my name, but people sometimes forget uh, how to spell my last name. So my last name is it would be Chartier in the French. It's I, we say it Chartier. And it's by University of Chicago Press. And so you can go to the publisher's website and get it there. And they, they um, ship pretty quickly. Or you can go to Amazon and get it there as well. Well, Professor, uh, uh, Professor Chartier, Chartier, thank you so much for, uh, <laughs> for, uh, for joining me today. This is, uh, this is super informative. And, and I'm glad we're finally able to connect and make it happen. Oh, I'm so glad. You know, Seth, one of the things is you played an important role in CAS stats because when you were helping some of our students with their writing with nylon calculus, I don't know if I could ever put into words how motivating that was at a very important time in CAT stats where they began to say, hey, we're doing work that's even even can be on a bigger stage than we realized. And, and so anyway, that underneath all this, I can feel that student generation of cat stats smiling that you and I are talking right now. <laughs> well, uh, thanks again for coming on and thanks folks yep. for listening. Be back next week with more call and shots. Take care.